we are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. Hello, bonjour, a great greeting to my friends and auditors, good morning. So, how do we let go without betraying the absconding object, the lost friend or family member, the broken bond, the broken country, the trashed ideals with which we're contending now? How do we let go and yet still retain a melancholic remnant? So we know that uh, letting go is prized as a value to be affirmed and considered and practiced. But now as certain types of deconfinement, déconfinement in French, are um, being evoked and if phobically practiced, people are afraid in some regards to, to get out of their shells and protective enclosures. Now, we know that there's a, at least a double valence of letting go and forgetting that philosophically weighs on us if in an unconscious yet um, perpetually pressuring modality. So I wanted to go over th that with you. And I tripped over over because getting over something, going over something and um, wanting to be over it is a real compulsion also to be applauded in some ways because it's not easy to get over things or people or broken um, philosophies, ideals, but getting over it or saying I'm over it is also, as you know, a moment of high affirmation. One feels high, one feels what Lacan called a jubilant triumphalism that kind of carries you and transports you. But getting over it is also possibly a, a manic excitability that is deluded at times. Can you get over it? And also, in the ethically careful sense that Derrida has developed, should you get over it? Is it right, so to speak, and I'm speaking too quickly, I'm accelerating perhaps, is it right to tell yourself that um, you're over something, even though in a Nietzschean way, it's good to um, drop the burden, kick away anything that, not anything, but certain historical pressures that clutter your path. So let's just be aware of the double valence of letting go and forgetting. 
in New York slang, you all know that there's um, an implication of instantaneous mourning when one says, forget about it. It means let it go, don't worry about it. Or it means other things as well, like no way that's going to happen. But we don't have to go into the byroads of uh, secondary and tertiary implications of forget about it. But I wanted to um, salute New York in the first place because it's going through terrible pain and loss and, and destruction, as is much of the United States where there's a shifting epicenter of the pandemic. But I wanted to remind us of certain liberatory moments of linguistic positing that New York, together with the other big N, Nietzsche, allow for. So Nietzsche urges us to understand and practice where we can active forgetfulness or a repression that might work. In other words, to allow us to move on and not be burdened by an overload of history, allegiances, um, tradition. And he's not being um, foolish or irresponsible, though Nietzsche himself came up with the thought of a noble irresponsibility. In other words, you shouldn't feel overly responsible in a way that um, truly ties you up and makes you kind of narcotically numb to certain types of forgetting that imply becoming and knocking down all sorts of um, unfortunate barriers to your own becoming. All of that needs to be carefully dismantled. I just want to um, keep the focus, eyes on the prize of forgetfulness and the kind of letting go that can be affirmed philosophically. And there's um, certain um, values that Hegel ascribes to different types of remembering and forgetting because remembrance and forgetting, which is a a track we've been at least insinuating, if not riding hard in these last podcasts. Um, in Hegel, there's different types of um, memorizing. There's rote memory, there's interiorizing memory, which means a way of holding the other, enthroning them in your heart space and carrying them forth. Um, in this regard, we're going to be moving toward the poetry of Paul Celan, who wrote, Die Welt ist fort, ich muss dich tragen. The world is gone. The world has broken off. I have to carry you. And I will carry this out a certain kind of reading, um, exercise with you at another moment. I want to stay focused and continue to think of letting go and forgetting according to at least two principal valences and values and urgencies. So in Hegel, there are two types of remembrance or memory. One is Erinnerung, 
So you hear the inner in German, the interiorizing memory, the introjection, how you hold and keep the other within. And another type of memory, which already, if you see that I'm creating a kind of logic of binary opposition, um, then, then there's a red flag that should go up. But in terms of a pedagogy of podcasting, so ped podcasting kind of um, wish to, to deliver some, some understanding here, I'll, I'll allow it to stand as and fall as a binary opposition between Erinnerung and Gedächtnis. So Gedächtnis is a kind of memory that is more rote, more technologically fitted, that um, you, you write notes, you memorize something, but that doesn't mean you're holding it in your heart space and loving it and thinking it. So um, things split off in the history and Anna history of philosophy. By Anna history, I mean that there are some things that don't get um, assimilated to the mainstream of historical memory and the historical memory of philosophical off-ramps and marginal spaces and um, nano-traces that we like to track and discover and understand in new ways according to the historicity of reading, what becomes possible, what gets blocked off as impossible, all that is a part of our temporal predicament and how we relate to language, to what it's trying to urge or submerge in repressive um, forgetfulness precisely. So there's the um, different types of memory, different types of forgetting, the question of whether it's not feasible to hold on to a remnant of that which you also want to flush or forget or get over. And not only as a, a flex of will or decision or some sort of imagined agency, but just as a kind of way to cope with the facticity of that which won't go away or maybe shouldn't go away because um, as, as much as we're run over and run through with um, narratives of moving on and making progress, developmental um, excellence and so on, there are some things that keep on recurring, tying us down, tying us up. And reinscribing us in very quiet and maybe unattainable ways. Moreover, maybe one should retain a certain uh, trace of pathology, like hanging on to the very thing that um, pains, that questions you, that criticizes your very being, and, um, and that makes you alert to certain things that um, you'd rather not think about. All of this is said in, in the name of something that um, Derrida brought to bear upon our 
ethical relation to forgetting and memory. And he um, enjoined us to not indulge the good conscience of a certain kind of amnesia. By that, he means that you feel good that you've leaned into a loss, you've acknowledged it, you've quote unquote dealt with it, you've coped with it, and now you're moving on. That's like a good conscience. That's okay, now we can forget about it. Um, but what would it be like to live with a certain pathological melancholy or even mania and hang on to the very things that seem uh, like you want to sweep them away and, and get on with your life? So one of the things that the pandemic um, has made us consider is that there might not be a getting on, a getting over, not, not very quickly, not very convincingly. So, um, and not in the way where you can just shrug off bygones. Okay, we're done with that. We're moving on. Um, and these are, these are some of the questions that we want to uh, press and that press upon us and may oppress us and may provoke us. And they come around and question us and have us always in this attitude of self-questioning, which is what um, philosophy re re relentlessly um, has us do to ourselves, to our environments, to others, and lets us even um, travel contradictory tracks, at least since Nietzsche most explicitly and avowedly, it might have been disavowed before Nietzsche, but Nietzsche is very proud of contradictory uh, urges, moments, um, articulations. It's his, so to speak, without being reductive, his feminine side that doesn't feel subjected or subjugated to mere contradiction that must be avoided ever since Aristotle's decrees on the subject of non-contradiction. So that went by fast. I want to thank you all for sending up signals, asking questions, offering remarks, and improvising on some of the themes, motifs, and topoi that I lay out for you. The singularity or the assigned singularity of these emissions that sail out under the flag of the rencontre philosophique. Whoa, 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 I need to stop right there before moving forward. Can singularity be assigned? See, a philosophical animal has to question the syntax of any articulation or assertion and this is, uh, it might feed your neurotic sensibility and keep you occupied like a child for a while, but it's also an, a very oppressive demand on the philosophical sensibility to question every word and every way of, of um, saying certain things with the understanding that we are limited by language, that we are 
also assigned by language, structured by language, and traumatically tripped up by language. Nonetheless, I just was going to whiz by this utterance then by saying that there was an assigned singularity. Now, can singularity be assigned? Absolutely not. Wait, hold on. Absolutely yes. Singularity is certainly not part of a self-production in the manner of German idealism that fueled historically a dangerously inflated trope or sense of self, a pumped-up national identity that plumped the German imago, according to philosopher La Coulabarre. We must examine the metaphysical backdrop of any dubious nation-pumping slogan, such as, Make America Great Again. And I emphasize the again as a, a, a problem of forgetting and and repetition, mimetic compulsion. What does how does the again function in that slogan as aberrant as it may appear? But it also belongs to a tradition of of metaphysically um, um, let's say sketched aspirations that land in the political field of being, such as that of Germany politically pitted against France in the 20th century, from the 18th to 20th century. There's a, something going on with France and Germany that I've, I've been studying and thinking about and inscribed in, because I do the shuttle from German to French, from German cultures to French cultures. Uh, on a regular uh, basis. So what is it of a, German, a Germany politically pitted against France that's still haunting us, encroaching upon us, no matter how many pages you think have been turned, and Germany culturally dependent upon an idealized remembrance of an ancient Greece, as its founding, let's say, imago, in the sense that to be great, precisely to attain singularity, you must imitate something prior that stands as a singular example, inimitable, and that has also failed. So I know this is going on the fast track, but many of you are able to speed up and then slow down and rethink some of these things. But I'm asking about the wish to be um, viewed and hosted by a sense of one's own singularity in terms of identity, in terms of jacked up national identity, which now is in itself um, reaching pandemic proportions, these nations and popular um, movements that want something again, something that maybe never was, something that was lost, something that is imagined. And all of this is part of a metaphysical tradition that, of course, moves forward 
un, uninterrogated. That's our job. So Germany, and this is pretty well known by German scholars and literature and philosophy, of course, um, has been a very famous book, by the way, is called The Tyranny of Greece over Germany. So Germany has wanted to jack up its image historically by, by and its being by um, siphoning off the grandeur of ancient Greece. But one of the lessons of Greece, says Hölderlin, our poet of poets, is its finitude, it's over, it perished. Um, so the splendor of Greece has faded into historically minted memory traces that um, are part of something that at once needs to be let go of and somehow has been pathologically uh, re-inscribed re in ways that are very problematic. So um, here's a pathology of, of attachment that we want, or a disorder that we want to be aware of, an excess. We were talking about a trace of pathology before in retaining something that is gone or going or faded. But let's remember that in order to um, assure one's identity, very often one at once wants to be absolutely singular, but in order to be singular, one is basing oneself, oneself via a mimetic compulsion on something prior and something in many ways um, idealized. It's very hard to get into the space of de-idealization, which is what's happening to many of us that we are recognizing the poverty and cruelty, the unacceptability of um, the um, dark side of our um, hosted identities, including national identities, of course. So Greece as the, um, as the model and exemplary um, destiny for which Germany um, had uh, wished to, um, from which Germany had wished to borrow its own imagined grandeur, accomplished precisely a temporal destiny and like all temporal beings must perish. That is the point of a temporal destiny of not being the almighty or um, borrowing features and um, existential um, accessorizing that might be um, ascribed to, to non-temporal or supra-temporal beings. So this is a lesson that, um, that one fades, one perishes, one must uh, let go of one's own existence. This is a lesson that, um, that is 
that stubborn humanity chafes against, namely that of its own mortality. And this is what the pandemic has thrown upon us, a new, ever anew, a relation to death. Sorry, but we have to go there as true philosophers or let's say relentless philosophical questioners. We, we question until we get to the limit of our finitude and capacity to understand, which is a question of mortality, a relation to death, which according to Blanchot is the ground of community. So this might be what has been jacked up in certain ways, a sense of community, immunity, um, of what, what is it that constitutes community, um, it would be a relation to death, which um, the pandemic um, had us sit with. Um, and of course, it's attendant menu of denials and, and manic um, and phobic kinds of runaway activities or passivities. So we might want to consider what was thrown into the foreground of our existence as um, mid-sign of being with and how this growing sense of mortality is affecting and creating, constituting, and in some to some measure deconstituting community. You know, when we have time, we will again revert to the double sense of memory, memorializing the double kind of tickers and counters and um, mortality timers, because we have those inconceivable numbers that keep on ticking away of how many people died. And most recently, um, the New York Times, which has failed us in so many ways and has created so many distortions and, and disappointed me and others with its, its lack of integrity in some areas, it, it got something right, which is um, it made a memorializing front page of the 100,000 deaths due to the virus. That would be, according to Hegel, part of a Gadeshness, um, a kind of memorializing gesture that wants to become also an or an inter interiorizing memory that we discussed um, just a few minutes ago. So what are the ways we count or discount or run away from the way to hold and carry these losses and mark them. This is something we want to uh, consider very strongly. Now, part of our um, tripping up and stammering and anxiety around how to assimilate or even name or tag these losses is, um, the, the loss of a destinal sense, that slogan, Make America Great Again, is, is part of the empty and vacuous, um, let's say, faux utterance 
of wanting something that knows itself to be already gone, perished, maybe yes or no retrievable, but according to what temporal scheme, what kinds of repetitions and difference. But what we know with that kind of sloganeering and certainly other indices is that there is no longer a sense of destiny in the, in terms of uh, something we could conceive in high tonalities as when Heidegger was kidnapping Hölderlin to have the poet be the loud speaker, the mega voice for some destinal pronouncement about the future of a nation or its um, ever-rising identity politics and self-identity. We don't have a sense of destiny. And that's something that um, Mr. Trump is um, certainly hitching a ride on. So um, the empty clang of, of um, falsifications of grandeur and so on. So the double kind of tonalities of of exaggerated and hyperbolic uh, pride when he doesn't, when he's humping the flag or something absurd, but nonetheless a sign of the times that one can desecrate the transcendental signified in many ways, which if it weren't done by that um, monstrous glob of cruelty, Trump, might have certain talking points that that it invites us to consider. Let me just say that it might be, even though this sounds like the bad news that one is delivering, and there's a lot of it, there's a lot of bad news that we can't turn our backs to or want to deny, we don't want to deny it. But a brighter side of that loss of the destinal grandeur of, of certain types of identity adhesions might be that our destiny is to have no destiny and that our destiny is to be abandoned. In that way, there's something that can occur, that must occur, that might be unanticipated, that might be truly speaking to our greatest sense of futurity. I'm not sure, but what would it be to understand that we must strengthen in our abandonment and to understand that we are abandoned without resurrection, without some afterlife, without something that um, we can't um, make ourselves accountable for or to, that this needs a lot of ontotheological, phallogocentric kinds of inroads and interpretive muscle, which I'm going to hope to fill in with some other time. But right now, just to give you a sketch of where we're going, I'm wondering what it would be like to accept this abandonment as the placeless place, the unvo, the unware, that urges us and convokes us to weaken according to mini Levi, Levinas, mini me, 
to weaken into the spaciousness of an untethered vulnerability. These remarks would take a long time to develop, and I'm just throwing them and their shadows on our imaginary blackboard right now, accumulating points of discussion. Part of our series of discussions involves time, fade outs, the time of suspension, hiatus, the time and constraints of finitude, the experience of time, in illness and other forms of half-life or undead rumblings. So I've prepared a lot more to say today, but I'm thinking that um, I will not presume upon you any further because I have been told by one person only, other people have said, no, that's not an issue and we can pause, we can re-listen, but that I um, have a tendency to ride hard and fast on a lot of philosophies and ideas and that it can be a bit fatiguing, which is not what I wish to do. I'd like to enliven, as Kant says, of the third critique and give us a sense of jubilation that we at least are thinking, are aware, are in this together, in our apartness and aloneness as well. I do want to apologize for the tempo. You know, I've, I've come a long way from my initiating morph in our shared zoography as a dog. I still live in dog time in the intervallic space between lockdown and deconfinement and furlough, what the French and Monegaskins call the déconfinement. And, you know, we are being transformed in a yet-to-be-discovered um, way by the pressing urgencies of the pandemic, which continues to inscribe different experiences, shared and abandoning timeout, corners and chambers of existence, new rules that have us repair to our rooms or be unable to leave our perches in our cages, a dwelling or undwelling that discloses a relation to being which is never stable. And we learned this in reading Heidegger on dwelling. A dwelling isn't a stable place, but a passage, if a slow passage of time also, that I still li live basically and mournfully in dog time. Woof! Well, I want to, uh, before signing off, do something a little unusual, which is to um, offer you and ask you to prepare a homework assignment for next time. And that is to think about the geste barrière, which is to say the whole gamut of protective shields, barriers, and masks accruing to our social syntax, the material indexes of keeping the least lethal spray of others' encroachments at bay, away from our vulnerable bodies, including the body politic. So let's consider and amass and start a taxonomy of objects, imaginary or real, that are 
convoked and mobilized to protect the body, susceptible to invasive pathogens, alien intrusion, a viral load, or a metaphorically degraded alien. Because some of this is not new. Um, and we want to look very closely at a syntax of warding off that precedes the defensive stances we take to keep clear of the airstrikes and cluster bombs of viral aerosol. So I want us to consider what, what these gestures have been historically and theoretically, including how we wall off uh, the others, others, the rhetoric of self-protection, boundaries, borders, attendant projections, and um, how certain signifiers have been introduced that actually collapse in on themselves. Like when Trump brought up the notion of caravans, you know, in itself, a caravan is hardly an incoming missile or an aggressive aggregate. So how did the caravan of um, Latin American refugees turn into a dysfunctional, diseased, invasive body? So how did he actually choose a neutral uh, transportation um, tropology and make it seem like a terrible threat. So what kind of walls already preceded or phantasms and deluded sense and obsessional neurotic need to keep the especially American boundaries, North American boundaries of the United States clean and clear of invading um, microbial attacks that that were and were not named as alien intrusion and traumatic onslaught. So that would be our um, assignment for next week to consider the um, implications and imaginary field of the geste barriere, all the protective shields that constitute the exclusionary operations of any identity, no matter how provisional um, dérisoire or necessary historically it, on the road to purported emancipation. So again, let's hold at least the double valences um, in hand and at hand to consider how we've been inscribed and de disinscribed as well by these habits and traditions. In the meantime, I, I urge you to be careful, immunoprotective in wise and constant ways, and to try to join me in dog time. Woof! See you next time. Adieu.